Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories this week, unfortunately, was the massive explosion in Beirut. There was a rush to look for more survivors as thousands were injured. And the explosion there looked to be the result of negligence. There was huge amounts of ammonium nitrate that exploded. They were improperly stored in a warehouse for over six years. Half of the city's destroyed and thousands have been left homeless. For more on what we know about this, we spoke to Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Yeah, well, it was really just a catastrophic scene in downtown Beirut. As you said, there was a series of explosions, first this initial fire or smaller fire or explosion, there are different accounts, and then this massive mushroom cloud blast followed by the blast wave coursing out across the city. And one would assume that some people were killed in the explosion close to the port. And then there were lots of people wounded and probably dead in the blast wave that broke windows, destroyed buildings and affected people miles and miles away. And so people who are on the ground there in Beirut are just sort of describing this apocalyptic scene where hospitals were overwhelmed. There was nitrous oxide fumes that were potentially dangerous. And this is happening in a country that is already really struggling with the COVID pandemic, of course, but then a series of political and economic crises that have triggered inflation and widespread protests over the last year. So this is coming at a very, very hard time for Lebanon. Obviously, a lot of people I know by now have seen the video of the explosion. There's so many different angles, so many different videos. There's videos of people experiencing their normal life. And then the blast comes. I saw a video of a family just looking out their window at the fire. And then the windows just completely exploding on them as the big blast came. Another video I saw was a woman taking bridal pictures. And then the huge blast comes and knocks her down and the crew down and everything. So just kind of the devastation that's there and was caught on video is pretty crazy. But I wanted to ask about the ammonium nitrate and why it was there in the first place and why it was there for so long, basically. Obviously, one of the first questions after this happened was what caused this explosion? Initially, people were trying to figure out, was this some sort of military attack or terrorist attack? But Lebanese officials have said that they believe that it was the result of this improperly stored ammonium nitrate, which we are told was there as a result of basically a stranded shipment that was headed for somewhere else in 2013 or 2014 and was brought. And because of a legal dispute and a sort of custody dispute, was brought into the port facility in Beirut. And then nobody uh, has really clarified why it remained there for so long. And I think that that the anger of the Lebanese people as to why there would have been this highly flammable explosive material stored in the middle of a packed teeming city, that's going to be uh, prompting, you know, a huge amount of political pressure. There are already, we've reported that there are some port employees that have been placed under house arrest. There are calls for government officials or port officials to be held personally accountable. But I think we're just at the beginning of that whole process. And I should add that the U.S. government officials that we're talking to don't have that much independent information at this point. But what they're saying is they don't have any reason to think so far, and this is evolving, that it was anything other than negligence or an accident. 
Yeah, it just seems like if this was purely negligence, it's almost worse that if it was a nefarious attack. This is something that could have been totally avoided. You did mention a few of the other things that were going on in Beirut and Lebanon, specifically with regards to coronavirus, because the pandemic is obviously affecting the world right now. I know the hospitals are already kind of overtaxed, and this is just going to make it worse considering so many people were injured there. I think they said uh, over 135 dead now and over 4,000 people injured. And those numbers are going to change. One would assume so. I mean, one of the things that was happening today was people digging through rubble. Many buildings farther away from the port, sort of as you went out, had windows or doors blown out, but structurally were intact. But then the ones closest to the port, some of them were destroyed. And so people were pulling people out of the rubble today. So you would assume that that death toll would potentially rise. And then we have reports of at least 4,000 people who were injured. So it was a really scary event for a lot of people. And then the rebuilding process now, I've been seeing just people throw numbers around. You never know what the true cost would be. Repairs could cost $5 billion. I mean, in the initial area there was just totally devastated. There's a huge hole where the warehouse was. What have other countries been doing to offer help? The French president is supposed to visit Lebanon tomorrow. Some of the European countries are already sending or talking about sending assistance. I saw reports of Russia offering assistance. The U.S. government has so far not said whether or not it'll send aid or potentially logisticians or any sort of personnel to assist. But that's also a possibility. And I would assume that something like that would occur from the United States as well. One of the other things to think about is the fact that there were these massive grain silos basically right next to the area, the site of the explosion in the port area that had in them. So those are now destroyed or significantly damaged. And so that could really hasten concerns about food security in Lebanon, which it is sort of crazy to think about Lebanon being a food insecure country was always thought as one of the most well-to-do in the past countries in the Middle East. It did go through a big punishing civil war in the 1980s, but it's really sad to think about Lebanon being in this place. Missy Ryan, national security reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Another story that happened late last week and early this week, the story of Microsoft saying that it wanted to move forward with plans to buy the U.S. operations of TikTok. It was a wild weekend. President Trump said he might want to ban the social media app. He said he might want to cut of the deal. No price has been decided yet, but this would be a big move for Microsoft in the social media world and also help TikTok with some data and privacy issues. For more on this, we'll speak to Georgia Wells, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. So TikTok had been searching for a buyer ever since Secretary of State Pompeo said in July that the U.S. would consider banning the app. And so our understanding was by Friday, kind of it looked like the talks between ByteDance, which is the owner of TikTok, and Microsoft were pretty far along. They were looking pretty good. And then Trump ventured kind of into the back of Air Force One to talk with reporters and said, oh, you know, it looks like we might ban TikTok. And so that clearly kind of sent in motion of just like kind of the deal talk scrambling. And so different advisors were trying to get through to Trump and he appeared to be coming around. And by Sunday night, he and the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, spoke by phone. And afterwards, Microsoft put up a post saying, yes, they were in touch with ByteDance and it was going well. To take things all the way through to today, then today, Trump said that the U.S. Treasury should get a slice of the deal if it goes through. So it appears that the talks might be back on the table. 
Have we ever seen a U.S. president get this involved in the acquisition of a company by an American company of another company? Have we ever seen something like this happen? I can't recall any situations that come close. Like, it's entirely possible there's some deal that I'm not thinking of, but this seems pretty unprecedented in my experience reporting. Trump definitely threw a wrench in the whole thing by saying he would consider banning it. Obviously, for a big company like Microsoft to go through with it, if it's going to be potentially banned, you know, is a problem. I know, obviously, ByteDance didn't want to have anything to do with that either. It seems like they're more interested in expanding the business rather than sharing data with the Chinese government, which is one of the whole reasons why they were considering banning it in the first place. So it's just kind of a weird situation how yeah. it's all playing out in real time and so publicly. But tell us what's at stake for each entity. Microsoft stands to gain a lot from that. What's in it for TikTok as well? So for TikTok, Trump has said that if they cannot find a buyer by September 15th, that they would face a ban in the U.S. That was the latest that happened today. And so clearly, like, September 15th is this kind of existential deadline for TikTok that they need to find a buyer before then. It's more than just a place to land because you brought up the data. TikTok has had a challenging time kind of getting the credibility it needs in Washington to convince regulators and lawmakers that the data of users would be safe. And Microsoft, if you recall, they actually... They run the cloud for the Defense Department. So they have that credibility that TikTok needs so desperately about their ability to safeguard users' data. Also, for Microsoft, this gets them into the social media game in a way that they haven't really been a player previously. And so, like, on the one hand, like, they get the hottest social media app in, in a long time. But on the other hand, there's a lot of headache that comes with the social media world. There's like content moderation and conspiracy theories, and there's all kinds of coordinated harassment that can come on social media apps. And so I think a question mark will be like, how excited will Microsoft be to take on some of those challenges that are A, difficult, and B, the company doesn't have a ton of experience with. We've obviously seen how Twitter and Facebook have been thrown into this whole thing and had to answer a lot of questions, but it's going to be tough for them to just kind of jump into it. And as you said, with like the most popular social media app right now, I mean, they're just coming in it headstrong and there's going to be a lot of stuff that they're going to have to handle right away. Obviously for TikTok, they initially had all these problems with the privacy and all that. So with Microsoft, that's a great pairing there. And for the United States, for the Trump administration, they're positioning that as a win also. Obviously, it's a win because you're taking a Chinese app away from them and bringing it to the United States. And also, they don't have to worry about the privacy stuff anymore either, the sharing of data with the Chinese government. 100%. Because I think it's important to like keep in mind the context here of there's this cold war, if you will, or tensions <laughs> right. between the U.S. and China, however you want to describe it. And TikTok has shown how easy it is for a company to become kind of a political chip in these kind of different tensions between countries. And so our understanding is certainly the Trump administration kind of wants a win Earlier on, there was one proposal we'd heard about that would involve kind of U.S. investors increasing their stakes in TikTok so as to make it majority owned by U.S. investors, which then in turn could sort of make it an American company. But that the problem with that was that even if that made it an American company, it wasn't viewed as this win. And so I don't quite know what constitutes a win, but you could imagine there's a little bit more at play than the like nitty-gritty mechanicals of who owns what, and it's more of a broader statement. 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I know that they haven't set a price yet, so that's going to be the next big hurdle. There's going to be tons of negotiations going on until that September deadline, I'm assuming. But even just kind of from reading a little bit in your story, the CEO of ByteDance, he used to work at Microsoft, so it's a familiar scene for him, a setting for him, and he might be more willing to want to hand it over there and, and kind of walk away from it on that front. But yeah, it's just going to be an interesting thing, and it's like I said, just seeing how the Trump administration is kind of throwing wrenches in this along the way, it's going to be crazy to see how it all works out. Georgia Wells, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Another continuing story is President Trump's assault on mail-in voting. But some polls show that it could hurt his re-election bid. There could be a delay in results because of how long it could take to count these mail-in votes, But voting by mail is expected to increase because of health concerns from coronavirus. And the president is going to need a lot of mail-in votes in key battleground states. For more on Trump's fight against mail-in voting, we'll speak to Christopher Catalago, national political reporter at Politico. We've been trying to gauge the impact of Donald Trump's criticism of mail-in voting for months now in these key battleground states that are decided by in the case of 2016, just a couple percentage points or even one percentage point. So if you have a large segment or even a modest segment of voters who cannot get out to the polls because of the pandemic and who decide, I don't want to send in my mail-in ballot because uh, I don't think it's safe. I think it might be subject to fraud, as Donald Trump has said, that could end up costing him in the fall. And so poll we examined looked at Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Florida, all very crucial states. And it found that a healthy portion of self-identified Trump voters were hesitant to send a ballot back by mail. And anywhere from 15% of them in Florida to 10% of them in Michigan. And so I think Trump is going to have to look very seriously at the comments he's made about this. And what we saw today, hours after our story ran, was him pulling back on this in Florida and saying that he didn't have as many issues with mail-in balloting in Florida because that's a state he really needs to win. But overall, 53% of voters in Florida and about half in Michigan and Pennsylvania had expressed health concerns over coronavirus, over casting their ballots in person. So what else do you have to do? Either don't vote or you go mail-in voting. So we already kind of are seeing that there's going to be an increased number this year. And there is concerns about the timing of everything, like how long it will take to count all those ballots, because that traditionally takes a lot more time. So there could be a delay in the results. It might not happen on election night like everybody is used to. But the trend just does seem to look like more people are going to be voting by mail this time around. And the question is, you know, I posed this question to the pollsters before Donald Trump had kind of reversed himself in a way on Florida and said, well, what if he changes his mind and argues it the other way? Does he have time to make this argument? And, you know, while the election is all the way off in November, these ballots go out earlier and he would have to make this argument consistently and tell folks in the states where he's okay with mail and voting that they should do it. I mean, this is going to have to be a real concerted effort on the part of his campaign to change tack because he's been arguing for so long now and made so many comments and sent so many tweets about his problems with it. So it takes some time for that to sink in with folks. 
And a lot of the mail balloting has to do with how much longer it takes to count them. Trump has said, well, in that time that folks are counting, where do the ballots go? Maybe they could get lost. He's raised all kinds of questions. And by a, a bit, just a massive margin, folks who are supportive of Joe Biden said, that's OK. You know, take another week, take however much time it takes to count those as long as more people can vote. And the numbers were almost reverse for Trump supporters. They have really keyed in on these comments Trump has made about wanting a quick result on election night, you know, within hours. And that if counting takes longer, we're going to question the you know, integrity of the election process. And so that's another thing that the pollsters at least believe that because that is such a consistent line by Donald Trump, that it's something that his supporters have adopted. And the other point I would add is the reason they believe that is because for many years, particularly in Florida with Republicans, mail-in voting was not seen as this highly partisan issue where Democrats and Republicans had very different views on it. They were kind of largely aligned with it. This is like the mechanics of participating in election, right? It's not something that automatically comes off as a partisan thing that Democrats and Republicans should disagree on. So they believe, this is the pollsters, that it's Trump's own comments over time, his own, like we say, assault on this voting procedure that has convinced people who are very loyal to him and support him and, and believe in him that this is the position they should be taking. Yeah. And I mean, it's just weird. You know, the Trump campaign does talk about mail-in voting. Obviously, if you can't vote in person, the Republican Party does the same. You know, everybody has the campaigns. Both parties have these types of campaigns to vote by mail. But yet the line from the president is that it's all bad. So sometimes it just gets very confusing on the whole issue. But still, more people are going to go that route just because they're concerned for their health. And we've seen problems the past few times already with just long lines, long waits. Nobody wants to kind of go with that. And as you mentioned, there are people willing to wait a few extra days for a result rather than actually go through the process of going in person. Yeah, no question. I think people are, are willing to wait. Now, the length of time for the wait, and we start to get into the nitty gritty of this that we don't get into in the story, but the quote unquote rejection rate that people have of their ballots. I mean, there have been issues before in, in various states and jurisdictions where the signature that someone has on file with the registrar of voters doesn't match the one they had on their ballot. And it's possible that that ballot could get thrown out. In states like California, there is a process where the registrar then will contact the voter and say, come back in and show us your ID and your signature, or show us that this thing can match and give you another shot at voting. And so there have been hiccups at times, both with the counting and with who gets counted. And so Equating that to fraud, though, is just not based on the evidence and the studies that have been done so far. So I think raising fears about people voting is, is obviously, Democrats would argue, obviously a way to depress the vote. But for Trump, as we say in the story, he needs to be really careful about depressing his own vote. Christopher Catalago, national political reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.